0: Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The people, my people are so smart. And you know what else they say about my people? The polls. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay?
2: Wanted for murder. Donald John Trump. No, not the usual one you hear about on the 11 o'clock news, but a more emotional and premeditated one. The murder of the bonds that are supposed to tie us together and supersede everything. The murder of what is right and what is wrong, and how America, though imperfect, would always lean toward what was right. The murder of class and respectability, two attributes the office of the presidency used to have. And the most notorious of all, the murder of family and friendships. How did the man who's filed for bankruptcy six times and driven several more businesses into the ground, pull the wool over the eyes of the people you thought you knew? How is he currently bankrupting the very soul of the people who you thought you shared common bonds with? And most important, is it even possible to save them from the spell they're under? That's what today's all about. Because as Rachel Chavkin said on last week's episode, sometimes the boldest acts of activism happen in a domestic space between two people. These conversations matter and are in fact the number one most requested topic you've written and asking for. And so today, we're going to help you start them. A few months back, I had a thought. Well, more than a thought, the beginnings of the plan. What if the theater community and theater people alike came together and used what they inherently have within them, that activist voice? And what if we use that voice and those powers to keep the House, take the Senate, and win back the presidency this fall? And what if I put together a limited series where every other week we give you an action plan and an artist slash activist to inspire you to go out and get to work? Well, let's do it. I'm Eric Ulloa, and this is Do You Hear The People Sing, a theater person's guide to saving democracy. Oh, and if you're here to reelect Donald Trump, you're in the wrong fucking place. So let's just dive right in because we have a lot to unpack today and I'd be a fool to unpack this topic without the help of a skilled professional. She's a clinical psychologist who specializes in providing structural family therapy, trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy, and therapy for LGBTQ individuals, among many others, She's also a beloved fixture in the theater and Broadway community, having spoken at Broadway Con and other theater panels, which is why we lovingly call her Dr. Drama. Please welcome Dr. Elisa Hurwitz.
3: Thank you so much.
2: Hi. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you?
3: I'm doing I'm doing all right, relatively, relatively I mean, well, and I'll take it.
2: Everything must be in relative terms these days. Amen. <laughs> it's like a scale of one to ten. I'm about a four today. Um, uh-huh. you know. Um, <laughs> I, I, thank you sincerely. Truly, this is a, you know, this topic uh, was very important to me because it, it didn't even cross my mind as a form of activism until I've, I just heard from so many young individuals that are so active out in the field and they're doing the work. But when it comes to the home, there's a lot broken there, and it, it, it's it's hard for them to maneuver that that path. And you know, last week we had a you know a conversation, as I mentioned earlier, with Rachel Chavkin, where she said some of the most bold uh, acts of uh, activism happen between two people in a domestic space. And I was like, you know what, we're doing this episode. We're doing it.
3: She she has a way with words, doesn't she?
2: She, you know, they might want to give her an award one day. <laughs> Or a couple of awards. I bet she'd give a, I bet she'd
3: give a good speech. <laughs> Me too. Um, so,
2: so, I mean, let's just, let's, let's, let's jump into it. So, what is happening as far as, you know, I know in my lifetime, I have never seen someone come along that has, and I don't want to use these words because this doesn't feel fair, but brainwashed so many people that they have to jump through hoops to create a narrative that still makes this person make sense. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's. I, I'm certainly not the, the the expert on the history of it, but so, <clears throat> excuse me, but certainly for our times, um, there, for our living times, um, there has not been a person like this. Um, you know, I think I think that there's a lot of people in recent history who we can think of in that category, um, such as. You know somebody like Nixon, not not quite the same category, but uh, you know in in that in that stratosphere, or you know even somebody like Hitler. I'm not saying that he is Hitler, um, but people the same phenomenon hap- happens of cognitive yeah. dissonance. It's a psychological concept that we all fall prey to. All of our brains work this way. Um, that it is very hard to let go of a belief system. Uh, In spite of, in spite of evidence to the contrary, you know, that kind of disproves the belief system. Uh, And and that's really what people are butting up against with their families when their family member will defend his actions and his record till they're blue in the face because they have doubled down on supporting him. And so to, to let go of that means that there is a dissonance that that's where the term comes from, you know, between the belief system, um, and, and what is in front of the, the person, what is presented in front of the person and it causes discomfort. And so we seek ways to resolve that discomfort basically by rationalizing our beliefs. Yeah. Well,
2: I mean, so I guess my, my, you know, thought of it is that they, has it become to a point now where it's basically, it's basically just football teams. Like the idea that like, you know, uh, you know, I come from Miami, people in Miami, the let's be honest, the Dolphins suck. Um, (laughs) uh, my my father and brother are going to kill me for that, but it's true. They, they, they have not had a successful season in my lifetime, basically. So, but still Come football season, everyone puts on their Dolphin stuff, and they are the number one fans, no matter a record of just not doing well. Has it become <laughs> that where it's like, I am doubling down on this. I am a Republican. I, I I believe in my my president, and nothing will sway me, no matter what. Is that what it is?
3: Well, unless the Dolphins are stripping people of human rights, I'm not. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I, they're just disappointing fans for decades. But I, I I think your analogy works in this way, which is that groupthink comes in um, where there isn't us versus them mentality. Again, we as humans are all prone to this. So as a psychologist, I have understanding and even empathy for the, for the challenge it is to let go of these beliefs or the challenge it is to let your guard down and say I'm wrong. Um, So it is that, that kind of, you know, gladiator us versus them in the stadium kind of thing. Like you take a side and you stick with that side.
2: Yeah. Have, you know, I, I like to approach, uh, I come at this from, you know, an actor writer mentality. Like, yeah. you know, I think of it as notes and, and I like to have negative notes first and then give me the positive later. So let's go, <laughs> let's go. I, I, cause I, you know, we have to fix this somehow and it's, it is not a one-sided thing to fix. You know, what, what do we as Democrats and liberals and progressives on on this side, what do you think we do incorrectly when facing uh, this problem?
3: That's a great question. Is that an actress thing, by the way, to...
2: No, like I, the just, negative I, just, notes first. I just personally, I'm like, give me the shit first and then pat me on the back. Like, <laughs> I'd, like
3: yeah, I'd rather ahead.
2: be slapped and then hugged. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we
3: can get into that later, but, but um, we'll break <laughs>
2: that down off, off microphone.
3: <laughs> Fair enough. Because <laughs> as a psychologist, I, you know, I always think of like positive first People, yeah. it opens people's ears, but you know, maybe that's just how you've learned to, to I, uh, adjust to the constant feedback that you you know, I'm receiving as an actor. (laughs) Anyway, that's just interesting. Um, So, so how, I'm sorry. The question was, Uh, what are we, what are we on on the
2: Democrat side doing negatively to, to, to cause this to deepen further?
3: Yeah. Anybody who has the bandwidth, the bandwidth, anybody who has the bandwidth to not react with anger. That's where we're, that's where, again, just, from my perspective as a psychologist, that's where we're going wrong. I do not begrudge anybody their angry response because people are, you know, valid in feeling angry, especially people who are directly impacted by the policies of this administration and have been impacted or historically oppressed. But if you have the bandwidth to, to not be angry, to not, let me say it differently, the anger is okay to not react in anger. The behavior, so distinguishing the feeling from the behavior, if you have the bandwidth to do that, that's where we can improve because when we respond with anger, if that's what you need to do because you need to express that anger, go for it. You're not going to change anyone's mind with that, right? That's just not yeah. going to happen. Nobody has, I'm not, I'm not going to have open ears if someone's yelling at me and telling me. Oh, no, them. absolutely. The moment you start screaming
2: <laughs> right? at somebody, their, their mind closes and I, I yeah, yes, yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah.
3: So, so. Speaking to, to somebody, you know, uh, in a way that opens their ears, I think is where we're going wrong. See, we see a lot of vitriol and anger and again, all of that justified. And, and for some people, even more so like they're, they're tired and they just, this is not their, you know, we can't ask of them to fight this without, without, you know, it being a very, uh, intensely emotional for them, but for, for folks, so I'm speaking to, you know, especially White cisgender heterosexual um, able-bodied folks, uh, take a breath, you know, and 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 try to talk to somebody the to to help help them hear you, <laughs> make them hear you. <laughs> make, listen to
2: Cole House Walker Jr. Damn it!
3: Yes, <laughs>
2: <laughs> make them hear you. Um,
3: make them hear you um, by speaking to them in a way that you would not want to be spoken to if somebody was trying trying to get something across to you. That's, that's, I think where I see us tripping up sometimes. Yeah. And, and, well, you know, so here, here, let's, let's,
2: let's go even deeper on that because I think yeah. that, you know, I, I certainly have failed this often, but I do, I do have personal things that I do that are my, that are my personal ways to when something angers me to step us away for a minute, because you're never going to be productive when you're angry. You're never mm-hmm. going to give anything back to society when you're angry or help anybody. Um, So, you know, on top of, Donald Trump being our president and eroding everything we care about and love um, since 2020 is the year that keeps on giving. We also have a fucking pandemic Um, now with the pandemic, you know, something I'm noticing too is that because of we are at a point where we are so deeply stressed emotionally, financially, we are just tapped out. And I I do see where anger is becoming the first go-to. So, if I'm approaching a conversation, let, let's do a little scenario, just a little setup. Um, yeah. Maybe you can throw some tools that our listeners can 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 use honestly yeah. during this time. So, I'm talking to my dear friend from high school, who I've realized on their Facebook recently, like many of our old friends from high school that we see, are Trump lovers, and I'm talking about the fact that, but there are there are little kids in cages who sleep wrapped in foil, and. That's just wrong. And their line of defense back to me is, "Well, you cross the border illegally, you go to jail. We're a country of law and order." How do I face this without blowing up?
3: <laughs> well, to, to protect your own mental health, right? That's part of it too. Yeah. Because fighting the fight, so to speak, is exhausting, and I, and I think that's why a lot of us are, a lot of people are tired right now. Uh, like you said, a lot of people are angry. Um. And I also want to, I also want to point out that. All of our emotions have a, have a function, uh, that is that, that Pixar movie, um, inside out, which oh
2: my God, I beautifully
3: love illustrates this concept, right? That, yes, that our, yes, all yes. of our emotions are meaningful and necessary. Um, and, and yeah, it's just such a beautiful film. And so anger is a call to arm. Um, and, and so sitting in anger is not good for our, for us. It, it it causes internal damage because that's not what it's meant for. So we're not meant to sit in it. We're meant to do something. Um, so if there's something you can do, do it. If there's yeah. not something you can do, finding ways to uh, to to get out of it. Um, and so to, to your question, there are things that there are tools that we can use, such as deep breathing. Um, and there are great um, there are great uh, apps. Uh, You know, for this, the one that I recommend is called Virtual Hope Box. It's free. Um, It was developed for vets dealing with PTSD, but it's the same CBD concepts as, you know, as we use for any CBD treatment. And one of the things it has on there is a deep breathing coach um, that that talks you through taking deep breaths so you can get really practice at it. That slows the body down, right? Anger, like I said, it's a call to arms and that's our body speeding up. So it's an antidote to that. Um, another another technique you can use is mindfulness or grounding. So mm-hmm. sitting in a chair, connecting to your five senses, connecting to your body sitting in the chair, noticing you know touch, taste smell uh, sight. Um, I always I always get lost in the fifth one, whatever the fifth one is. <laughs> Um connecting to those really detailing what you're experiencing in terms of your five senses. Um, that gets you out of your head and into your physical body, which is also an antidote to kind of stewing in the anger.
2: Yeah. No, it's really helpful because you know, I I I tend I always, I always find it more interesting. And again, I'm coming at it from an actor-writer point of view, and, and what I what I watch, but I think it's a truth of humanity that. Yes, mm-hmm. we are going to give into anger. Yes, we're going to give into sobs of crying and tears. But to to me those are go-to things we go to, but sometimes the 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 hardest work, the most impressive work is how we battle not going to those.
3: Yeah. You know, yeah.
2: and how we, you know, anybody can blow up. Anybody can get mad, but it really takes some deep work into knowing how to feel the anger rising in you and know how to use technique yeah. to bring it back down again so that you are a functioning human that can actually process information and get across information without resorting to the quickest emotion you're going to feel.
3: Right. And, and you know, and again, I think it's important to make that distinction between the, the emotion and the behavior. So we can feel, feel incredibly angry and then the blowing up is the behavior, right? The, yes. The expression of that, the yelling, whatever it is, throwing things, punching the wall—I um, love that. that the
2: emotion, the behavior—that's great to know. Yes,
3: and it's an important distinction because the, the emotion is never wrong. The emotions are always okay, and they're always valid. The behavior, the action, can be better or worse. It can be healthier or less healthy. Um, what's going to serve us, and what's going to serve what's going to serve our mental health, and what's going to serve our purpose? Like I said, you know, like we were saying before. Uh, you know, we could all have times where we could have blown up at somebody we know for, you know, for stating stuff that's so harmful. And would we be valid in our anger? Yes. Would we have accomplished anything in terms of, you know, changing that person's perspective? No. Yeah. In fact, we probably push them further into their beliefs.
2: Yeah, that's very true. Because, yeah, once they get the attack, they they recede deeper into it.
3: Yep. They're like, then now you're the crazy one. Right. And I'm, I'm the one who is, uh, who has the sane and sage position. Yeah. You're now the victim of the
2: aggression. So now exactly, you're like, you're like, wait a minute. The (laughs) person that was trying to convince me, attacked me. I am now the victim of their attack. So therefore somehow we've flipped roles very quickly. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Um, so, you know, How do we and I'll tell you, you know, I'll make this a personal thing of mine. You know, um, I I have an uncle who uh, granted our relationship has he's just been very distant throughout life. So it wasn't a big loss in a way. But I have an uncle that, you know, you know, former Obama guy and everything. And then something about Donald Trump, I do not know why or how drew him in, and he has become a red hat wearing, make America great again, Trump wine drinking idiot. Wait, <laughs> Trump
3: makes
2: wine? He makes wine. It's probably not very good, does. I imagine. Okay. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> probably as good as, pro- as the steaks. It, it probably gives you a real bad hangover the next day. Um, <laughs> so he, he has, uh, you know, uh, a few years back, a conversation I had started on Facebook, he jumped in after never really seeing anything and waited on it and a a bunch of my friends went on the attack as happens on social media um i was instantly blocked by him and haven't heard a word from him in years at all um he has chosen the side of a reality star failed businessman president over his (laughs) own nephew i i have found my peace with that but i know and this is the number one thing people were writing to me about is how how do we go about finding a path forward? Let's say my mother or my father were our Trump loving people, but they're my mother and my father and I love them dearly. And we have to have a relationship, but their ideal system is clearly no longer anything I ever thought it was.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's such a great question. And so many people are in this position right now. Um, like you were saying, so especially so many young people, um, And here's the important thing in terms of changing people's positions and and what we learned from the, um, uh, from the prop eight, um, campaign, um, in California, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, very clearly in terms of public policy, but this is true on a one-to-one basis. We don't change people's minds with logic about emotional issues. We change people's minds about emotional issues with emotion. Um, so you know, we all know that feeling of trying to argue something when the, the evidence is right there and it's so clear to us, you know, something like Trump put children in cages and separated them from their families. Um, and, you know, we've probably all heard every argument, you know, that, that you could think of and those we couldn't even think of from Trump supporters. You know, but that's the, not
2: personal to them. Like, you know, when they hear kids right. in cages, well, not, not my right. kids.
3: Right. And so, right, exactly. And so talking about the emotion of it and finding the, the shared values, because believe it or not, there are things that we probably can find, um, that we have, that we have shared values with people who disagree with us. So politically, um, like human rights, you know, or like the value of, um, you know, maybe innocent and too proven guilty, or what's you can find something. What is it that you that the, that the person feels that you also feel? I, I, I have to tell you, you know, I see a range of people and I practice in the Northeast, so um, in, in an area that's very, very homogeneous. And I see people who are Trump supporters, and uh, I have to find the, the in, I have to find the in to the kernel of connective truth. In what they're saying, I so when somebody tells me that they think, you know, Obama was a terrible uh, man and that Trump is the greatest president ever, I have to find the kernel of truth in that.
2: That is some deep dive searching for you.
3: Uh huh. <laughs> so I've gotten I very fast. Needle in a haystack searching. <laughs> it's not easy. It's not. It's not easy. Some well, days, How do you? How do you it's find not it? Easy. <clears throat> you know, it's so. It, In that context, of course, it's always about the you know what is what what is the grist for the mill? What is this about for for that person? Um, You know, and so we might suss out a little bit more. What do you? What is it that you like about uh, Trump? I'm like kind of gagging on the word, but um, (laughs) um, you know, what what is it that you like about him? Maybe they say, well, he's he's strong, or he's going to make things the way they used to be. And they say, ah, okay, I can understand why change is scary. Right now, I have found. The thing I can connect to. Yeah. That has actually nothing to do with Trump or supporting him.
2: It's they're scared um, of change.
3: They're scared of change. And I yeah. can understand that. Yeah. It's hard. It takes a lot of work.
2: Totally. People are, are honestly, our country is a, we are a traditional tradition, heavy country that, that doesn't like when people shake us up too quickly. You know, that's why right. progression is so slow in this country because we, we can't deal with it. We really, I mean, proof in the pudding we went from Barack Obama to Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean. It's like the,
3: the pendulum was swinging so far that it almost like went back around again, you know? Yeah. Like it like went over, the, over the bar. <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah.
1: Because,
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's head spitting, right? And before Obama, we had Bush. It's a, it's very, uh, it'll be a very interesting time historically, I think, to analyze that. I just don't think we have full perspective on like the why.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. But uh, what a pendulum swing.
2: So, so, you know, so now, so we find a common core yeah. belief that we share and then how do we take that and how do we, you know, cause like, for example, yeah. he, here's, here's the problem I find myself in a lot. And, and it's not all about me today, but I'm using myself cause I'm the only person here. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I will make, you know, a personal plea to people who are Republican in my life. And I say to them, it's, it's quite simply this, you know, When it comes to voting for the Republican Party or when it comes to voting for Trump, or let's say not even voting for Trump, just abstaining because you hate him, but you're not going to ever vote for a Democrat, God forbid, the world (laughs) might, you know, end, even though it (laughs) never has. And in fact, numbers tell us the opposite. Um, But, you know, they, you know, I say, I go, I am a gay Latino in the arts. Everything that describes what I am as a human is up for grabs when a Republican's in office historically and right now even more so you know as a gay man my rights are always trying to be stripped away and on their party platform this year they still call mm-hmm. for a ban on marriage yeah they call for a ban on transgender people in the military they they, yeah. they still they still tear apart my community as a latino well are you know kids like me are in cages enough said about right. that one um including you know, no immigration policy going forward, just a complete disaster. And then as a, as an, as somebody in the arts, which I tell people in the arts all the time to get their shit together and get out there and, and fight (laughs) and work. The first thing always on the Republican chopping block is the arts always. So when someone tells me, Oh, I'm voting for him, but it's not, I will always defend you, but I, but you know, he's good on my taxes and he's good on my, how do I come? How do I fight that?
3: Yeah, that's, That's tough because people are saying, you know, are making a differentiation between their self-interest and your self-interest. Yeah. And that, and that's really hard because if it, I don't know, I don't know, I hate to say this, but I don't know that there's any, there's any movement in that. Um, You know, all you can do is talk about how, how those policies have personally affected you like you just did. Um, And that, you know, and you can say that those, those, those half measures or saying, I support, I will always support you, but I'm voting for this person who is in effect against you.
2: Yeah. You're negating does, your support.
3: <laughs> right. Right. How that feels to you. Right. Yeah. Like this, this is, this is communication, you know, stuff that I, that I work on with people that talk about the feelings because people can't argue that they can argue the facts, but they can't argue the feelings. You, only, you know, if that hurts you, you know, yeah. only, you know, if that makes you feel rejected, yeah, they can't argue that. So if you you can share that, and maybe that has an impact on them. Maybe it doesn't, but but maybe it does. Yeah. That you know yeah. that the hurt that that may cause. I, I you know I'm just thinking about um, my own aunt and uncle, who I love. They're incredible people, and my uncle uh, is a, a veteran of uh, the Air Force, um, fought in Vietnam, um, and uh, and it and is just an they're, they're just incredible people, um, and. I think like, you know, like a lot of military folks, they are, they are Republicans, which is fine. Yeah. <laughs> but they also voted for Trump, which is a bit of a head scratcher. And, you know, I had taken um, my kids to, my young kids to go, you know, visit them in Virginia um, a few years ago, a couple years ago. And kids were in bed after, and I was sitting there with my aunt watching the news. And this was about the time that uh, the, 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 the quote unquote Muslim ban was happening mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and people were going to, it, it seems like eons ago, but it was this administration. It was, isn't that crazy? I don't, well, we, I we've
2: just, all aged 25 years. I mean, yeah. I, I, I feel like the old lady from Titanic. I'm like, it's been 84 years, <laughs> you know, like that's what we all feel like. We are oh Rose gosh. DeWhip, you cater.
3: Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> yes, uh-huh. we, we all are. Um, um. I'm, I'm ready to toss my necklace and get out of here because this, <laughs> this is too much. Um, and, and I'm sitting there watching. So I'm sitting over watching, watching this news with them. And, and you know, there are, there are opportunities to change people's minds. Um, I, 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 in that trip, I did not try to, well, I did, I did try to change their minds, but usually my policy with them is to not talk politics because until now, their Republicanism has not been such a threat to us. Um, And, and I respected that the Republicanism came from, came from, you know, it came from their lived experience that was hard, hard one. And I respect that. Um, But now it was like too much. So we're sitting there watching this and my aunt's like, well, people should come here legally. We came here legally. And I had to remind her that because of the 1921 Immigration Act, um, actually, our families barely got in here. Uh, so it would have been her generation, her, let's see, her parents' generation. No, her, her grandparents' generation, it's my great grandparents. So each individual great grandparent came over here and the rest of their families were killed in the Holocaust. So like literally, cause it wasn't quote unquote legal for them to come here. They were murdered. So yeah. that, that, you know, how can we, how can we not have empathy for people trying to find, um, Refuge here in the United States when we sought the same and were killed yes. because we weren't given that refuge and yeah. she she didn't have a rebuttal to that. And so I thought maybe she heard it. I hope I love her. I hope she heard it.
2: Yeah. So, you know, so how do we find, you know, again, for those who are for those who are unyielding and 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 the children yeah. or the loved ones of those that have to go home spend Christmas or Thanksgiving or Hanukkah or any of, of the major holidays at home, how did, how did they find a path forward mm-hmm. knowing that the person that they love so much thinks so differently from them? Like, how do they, how does that path move forward uh, yeah. psychologically for the, for the person that, that, that is, you know, the, the non-Trump voter, how do, how do they move forward? Yeah. Healthily, healthily.
3: Yeah. If you think, if, if your family members have ears to listen and engage respectfully, um, you know, cause some people can do that, you know, they can, they disagree with you, but it's not, they're not attacking personally and they're not, you know, uh, judging you, you know, it's yeah. like really an exchange of ideas. If you can do that, keep doing it, you know, in the ways that we were just talking about is speaking about the, the emotion and not about, not about the facts. Well, so you can use facts to explain how, how, why you feel, how you feel, but use emotion to help change their mind if it's not going to happen or that it is harmful to your mental health to engage in those conversations or to hear, um, you know, what they're saying, for example, you know, to hear their transphobia, um, you know, or to hear their xenophobia, that's harmful to you to, to be exposed to. um, It's, it's kind of like salvage what you can take the good and, and leave the rest just in order to be able to be okay. If they're really, if they're abusive, then we're talking about more serious boundaries. Is it even worth having holidays with, with sure. those I, ag- folks?
2: Yeah. Agreed. Agreed.
3: Yeah.
2: You know, people, I think people sometimes, I, I, I am a firm believer that family is the most important until they become something that, that limits your life yeah. in a way that is emotional or, or restrictive. And when you find a way that the, your family is the very block that keeps you from advancing happily and successfully and healthily in life, then you have to reassess the balance of family in your, in your life, you know? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. You know, we're we're in one final question. We're in for, uh, you know, we have a long road ahead. You know, people think that if Biden, Harris, you know, win the presidency, the job is done. And I keep saying, my God, Mm -hmm. we we, we cannot do what we did with Obama again. With Obama, we were so excited. We all, and I am included in this, we all celebrated, popped the cork, lived our best lives when, yeah, Obama, oh, you guys lost for eight years. And we freaking forgot about the governorships and the Senate seats and the house and we lost everything and we didn't keep our eye on the prize. So, you know, a lot of people on here, this is obviously a podcast for theater people to find their activist voice. What do you say psychologically for, um, and emotionally for people who, who are taking on a lifetime of activism and are going to be from here on out fighters to make Mm -hmm. sure that we have a world that we can leave in a better place and we arrive for the future. What do you say to them to keep them, emotionally healthy for the years and giant fights ahead.
3: Huh. Um, gosh, it's a big question. I mean, keep in mind, it's what it's one step at a time, right? We, we can only take on what's ahead of us so that we can, we yeah. can plan ahead and look at the big picture. Um, you know, uh, just one, one step at a time. It's like Aladdin, you know, trying to make it through the Agrabah marketplace. You know, yep. he's just like kind of jumping from like one tent to the other, just one thing at a time. Um, and and know that no single one of us can fix the whole thing, but we can do our part, right? Like this podcast is is a piece of your part. Um, sure. No one else has your voice, and you're using your voice to to say something, to say things, and have conversations that are important to you that can help move the needle. That's that that is an important thing that you're doing, and it's your part. Um, mm-hmm. None of us can can change this whole thing, and so finding finding our part, finding your part. Um, and self-care I think this is probably the biggest thing I can I can say is self-care I, I often say to, to people as a psychologist that you know to model the, to model self-care I say the most important part of my job as a therapist is taking care of myself which seems antithetical to what my role is but it's it's actually not because I have to be filled up. I think much like actors do, I have yeah. to be filled up in order to be present for people in, in emotionally intimate situations, which again, you know, is what you, you guys do as actors and what we all need in order to be available to fight the fight um, in, in whatever way, whatever role that we can find to so take care of yourself, check in with yourself every day. Where am I at? How much more fuel do I need and, and know what those things are, that you have that refuel you. Um, and I would also say to artists listening that, um, although there may be specific things that you want to do to be politically active, that art, and I think, you know, you all know this, but like art is politics. Art is political.
2: 100%.
3: Right. So just the mere fact of you doing your work (laughs) is, is matters. It, it hundred percent matters.
2: It is the most, I, I find it to be the most, um, the most powerful and infiltrating weapon we have because people sit down and they don't expect uh-huh. to be filled with emotion and to leave with a perspective they didn't walk in with. Right. And we have the opportunity to take people in that moment and show them a different perspective and they have no idea it's coming, but it happens in them. Mm. And afterwards, mm-hmm. something is different. They don't know what it is, but something is different. And that person has a new perspective on whatever the topic may be. I I think think it's a very powerful. Yeah.
3: I think about, you know, I think about cabaret and, um, you know, that, that we all think that we would not be the people to go along with, with the Nazis Mm -hmm. and, you know, and yet there we are clapping for, uh, you know, for the MCs and laughing, you know, when he's singing, um, if you could see her through my eyes. Yeah. Right. And the whole time we're laughing and he is the whole song is anti-Semitic. Yep. He gets us. So that, how do you, how do you, how do you make a facsimile of that experience? You know, you, you can't say to people, but you, you were susceptible, you would have been susceptible to, to that, you know, uh, sociopathic fascism as well. You know, you're, you, you could have, you could have fallen prey to that as well. And people say, no, no, no. But you sit them in that seat and you get them, you know, kind of uh, um, enamored of that character, and laughing along with him, and then they now they get it in a different way. That's yeah, that, political. Yeah, that right? final
2: that final line comes. You know, she wouldn't look Jewish at all, Ugh. and they and that deep intake of breath from oh, I've just been laughing for three minutes. You know, and didn't yeah. realize that the gorilla was a you know commentary. Yeah, it's really it's a masterwork. Um, I, Dr. Harwood, I cannot thank you enough for this time you've given us. Uh, I think this is you know. I don't even think I know this is tremendously helpful for a lot of people and especially, you know, with being so close to the election, uh, we can do some definite work here and and also consider, you know, keep ourselves healthy and and healed throughout it. So thank you so much for coming on.
3: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I I, I think this conversation is so important and I just...
2: Activism can come in the very details of your life that you share. The joys, the pains, the struggles, all laid out for an audience to look through. And as they watch and as they listen, they find themselves within your truth, and a powerful thing happens, a change in perspective. Differences in opinion become commonalities, sexualities become normalized and understood, and progressive ideals are suddenly digestible. And our next guest is a shining example of how an artist utilizes that power. Please welcome, and I'm a huge fan... Lisa Crone. Hello. Hello. How are you? Uh, well, how, how, how can I guess on a scale of one to 10, how are you feeling today?
1: Uh, that, that's, that's good. Uh, uh, well, I, I'm very happy to be talking to you. Um, yeah. Yeah. A friend of mine, uh, said the other day that, that what she says, the answer to that question is we're fine and heartsick. Yeah. That's how she responds.
2: No, it's very true. In Well, which, uh, you know, I had, I I moved to New York right at the time it was playing, so I never, unfortunately, had the chance to see it, but I, mm-hmm. I have read it and, well, I say I, I read slash cried my way through it. Uh, <laughs> you, you get extremely personal and welcome us right into your life and your family history and the effect is so powerful. Um, What compelled you to write this and to put it all out there for audiences?
1: I don't know. I mean, what compels us to make theater, number one? That's true. But I... I would say that, you know, both well in 2.5 minute ride, 2.5 minute ride I wrote was the piece I wrote previously. And it centered around my relationship with my father and well centered around my relationship with my mother. I mean, both of my parents were, um, you know, they intersected in ways that I fo- found, uh, compelling and interesting and particular with, some of the major events slash issues of the 20th century. Uh, For my father, he was a German Jewish Holocaust refugee. And then also, and he left Germany by himself and he became, he was drafted into the American army and ended up interrogating uh, Germans to determine who should be, whether or not they should be tried for war crimes. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, he was one of many German Jews who did that. Now we understand that they were a cohort now known as the Ritchie boys. He was one wow. of those. We didn't, he he didn't know that. We didn't know that until very late in his life, but he did that work. And his, what he took from that experience was pretty unique. Uh, and I, so I, th- I think, in, you know, it's, I mean, I, I think I was drawn to theater because for whatever reason that we're drawn to the theater, it's just like a vocation and it calls you. But mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, part of the reason I started to write and sort of clawed my way into understanding something about the craft of writing was so that I could tell that story. And then the same with my mother who, um, I mean, well intersects around really two different issues. One is chronic illness Mm -hmm. and the other one was about, you know, race. When I was uh, a kid, my mother was, Uh, very, she was a neighborhood organizer. And, you know, with other people in our neighborhood fought against redlining, blockbusting, created a stable, racially integrated neighborhood, created an equitable busing plan in the uh, city of Lansing, um, starting before the court-ordered busing. And then when the court-ordered busing came in, making sure that it was an equitable plan rather than one in which the burden was just placed on the black neighborhoods, primarily Mm -hmm. black neighborhoods. So, and each one of those plays had sort of a a question in them. I think my father's was about memory, sort of an inherited experience of trauma rather than a direct experience of trauma. And Mm -hmm. then also, you know, sort of my, the sort of central, a moral lesson of my childhood. Although both of my parents, part of the reason they were good characters is that there was nothing, you know, they were very. There was nothing grandiose about them, you know. But, you know, my father used to say, in his sort of ironic way, that what he realized interrogating these prisoners was, if if he if it hadn't been for the, and he would sort of air quote good fortune of being born a Jew, he wondered if he might have become a Nazi. That wow. capacity uh, his, his sense of his capacity to be the one causing harm rather than the one being harmed was the constant question of his life. And definitely, I think, you know, my mother had an understanding of that. And then my mother, you know, I, in, well, I describe her as a housewife savant, um, yeah, I love you know, that. She was a very, she was like, a, you know, a Midwestern lady, you know, very, uh, sort of, you know, practical in her approach. Uh, and I think what I was interested in 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 that play, and well, you know, I was writing it sort of coming out of the Reagan years, a period of prosperity where the belief was um, anything that you... We, that we make our own fate. Uh, each one of us individual makes our own fate. And, you know, if you just dream it, if you want it enough, you can manifest it. And it seemed to me at that time that that was... Uh, a sort of self-reassuring fantasy um, coming out of a a particular moment of, you know, a lot of prosperity for many people and that for people who, you know, the people who weren't in those pockets of prosperity, uh, that they they were being uh, blamed for um not being able to access that or blaming themselves and i was right. looking at it both in terms of health the idea that we choose whether we're healthy or not and then um in terms of
2: uh, sort of racial racial outcomes as they manifested um, in the place where i grew up and and it seems it seems just just from your very background and and, and your father with his his background and what he had to do and then your mother with her feelings and her and the way she treated race relations at a time where not many people were fighting this way, you know. Um, it seems that you almost were born into an activist household. You know, uh, is that is that true?
1: Yes, I mean, you know, it's funny. My parents never would have described themselves that way, uh, and in you know, in a lot of ways, they were very sort of middle class. Um, you know, my my dad worked, and my mom you know, was a quote unquote housewife. I mean, there were certainly people around us who were much more, you know, self-evidently political or, or radical. Certainly locally, my mother just intuitively understood the levels of power yeah. um, and how a community could um, challenge elected officials. Um, but she, there was no, there wasn't, there I mean there was there was an understanding an articulated understanding of uh definitely the way um you know redlining was working the way uh uh disinvestment was working and that was being specifically dealt with but there was no sort of bigger theoretical framework that was spoken about it was really a very practical and human level and I think that's part of you know why my mother was so effective. She was, you know, it was always happening on the level of actual
2: people. It's funny. We talk a lot about privilege right now and white privilege and everything else. And your mother at that time recognized privilege, which is pretty remarkable. How does that in the moment we are right now, how does that come back to, to, to revisit you? And how does that inform you on what we're dealing with this very moment?
1: I mean, I feel incredibly grateful that black people are not an abstraction to me,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> and but and that being said, uh, the degree to which certainly, I mean, I would say throughout my adult life, um, definitely, in a huge way, at the twenty sixteen election, and since then, the layers of additional. Um, sort of dismantling of the sort of, you know, just, you know, white supremacists air that we breathe that yeah. I have, you know, seen in my, in my own outlook and, you know, worked to take away, um, you know, that work is, it's just unending. You know, I, I think one of the things I think about, um, The way people are struggling in this moment, the way white people are struggling in this moment, um, is that, you know, there's this like this like sort of terrified, um, sometimes earnest, um, you know, feeling like there's a right way to do this. And I keep thinking I'm doing it the wrong way. Um, And I, you know, and I think there's a there's a a panic. I mean, whatever, it's, it's super stressful time, obviously more so for, uh, for people of color, specifically for black people than for white people, um, because of the actual, um, you know, the actual violence, the actual, you know, discomfort is different from, <laughs> um, you know, uh, violent, um, uh, repression. Um, but, I, some, you know, one of the things I, I I say to people, and I keep thinking, is that there is not a right way to be. All of us are living inside white supremacy. The, yes. There, there is no right way to be. All of us are just cu- trying to claw our way out of this framework into something that doesn't exist yet. We're trying to make it. Yeah. Um So if we feel that everything that we do is off somehow, that is correct. Um. You know, this is a very uh, this is I mean, literally, we're just literally clawing our way forward to make something new.
2: Yeah. But there, I mean, the very systems that we all take part in just day to day, not even realizing we're starting to learn those systems are a form of white supremacy to many people. And we don't even realize those things So, you know, those of us who. How, were, I know I, I grew up very much like you. Uh, I grew up with a black, you know, quote unquote grandmother, and 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 race has never ever been a thing in my life that I've ever thought anything different of. I I don't, I've never ever felt the difference between people by color ever. It just hasn't, it never entered my life. I wasn't I wasn't raised in a house that way at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, but to learn that it goes a step even further, and that things that I actively participate in may be part of a systemic problem that keeps the door closed on so many has been just eye opening you know and
1: yeah i i think for me it's, it's you know it's the it's really dismantling the the assumption of white leadership and uh the the centering of white perspectives and yeah. um uh and, um, authority and, and, and yeah, and, and leadership of institutions. I think that, uh, you know, in theory, uh, that isn't something I have been in favor of, um, you know, taking it apart in specifics and seeing all the, I mean, certainly after, after the election, after 2016 election, i be, I had had, I definitely had awareness about this before, but, but it just the stark relief of the times when I was in rooms where there were no people of color, um, in theater institutions, um, became, uh, I mean, certainly at that point I was like, all right, I, I'm just gonna, you know, this is going to be something that I'm going to do is to, you know, question this whenever I'm in this, uh, situation. Um, Uh, but, but I had, I don't know, you know, definitely I, there's all kinds of little pockets of places where, and just the way we talk about things, you know, whether, you know, this is the question about inclusion, right? You're including people in what you can come to this institution, you know, as opposed to this, this thing should be different, inviting people of color into a white institution isn't actually what that, that, that might, that, that shouldn't really be the goal and really realizing the places where those kinds of thoughts uh, were part of just the architecture, uh, the the still unexamined architect, you know, there's just all these little pockets where it's like, Oh, right there too. That grammatical construction, that uh, organizational structure, that, you know, it's, it's deep, deep, deep. I've just been, I just was, have been listening to the podcast, um, nice white parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in some ways I might've thought this is something that I really have experience with because of how I grew up. But, um, Hannah Walt really takes it to, um, you know, layers of, uh, depth that I hadn't considered before.
2: Now, as a playwright, I practice and I preach that deep specificity is the key to universality. Yeah. You know, the more the more meat on the bones of your characters and their stories, the more an audience will find themselves in it. Uh, in fact, and this is not because you're on the pod. This is true. I use Fun Home as my example always uh, in the last you know couple of years that uh, somehow a lesbian comic book artist dealing with not only her sexuality, but the fact that her father was a closeted homosexual who took his own life somehow transcends that. And by the end, the entire audience, including myself, was deeply sobbing. We Mm -hmm. all found ourselves in a story so specific that we all saw ourselves. We all saw our family in it. We all saw Mm -hmm. the pains we, you know, um, and I know it's not your story that you were, I was on there, but Mm -hmm. as a member of the LGBTQ community, what was the power you found in giving these characters your voice?
1: Um, You know, I've, I've told the story a lot of times, but um, you know, people would often say to me, particularly when the show was at the public, they would say to me, you know, meaning this to be a great compliment, they would say, this is so much bigger than a story about a lesbian. And I would always think this is exactly the size of a story about a lesbian. You know, what has changed is your perception of who is fully human, who has the full prismatic human capacity to reflect human experience as a protagonist. Yeah. And people love when that happens. You know, that is actually why we go to the theater, not to, I mean, it is true that if you never see a person like yourself represented, it is very meaningful to see that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the greatest experience in theater is when you see the full humanity of all You realize that every single person has as full a humanity as you do.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. That is the, that is the, the the truly, uh, you know, transcendent, uh, I mean, literally transcendent. It's the way that we transcend the, the limitations of our individual consciousnesses.
3: Um,
1: and so I I think you're totally right. It's about specificity. I mean, you know, this obviously is a, we've just been, uh, I was just talking about this with Christine Toy Johnson, um, who, has led many, many DEI efforts throughout, uh, you know, f- with equity just like throughout the theater world for over for like 25, 30 years, I mean, not 30 years. Maybe she's not that old. Anyway, she's, she's really, a uh, um, she's been leading this, um, effort in the theater for a long time. I just, I, I, uh, she's awesome. Um, and, So she was taught, we were talking the other day about, you know, this question that uh, playwrights, very often white male playwrights um, ask, um, you know, first of all, do I have a right to write about people unlike myself? And, you know, the thing I always say is nobody cares. Of course you do. You can write about whoever you want. Nobody cares what anybody writes. What they care about is what gets produced. Yeah. So that's one thing. And then um you know and then how do i do it and it is about it is absolutely about specificity but it's not a bag of traits um which i which is not which is not what you were what you were saying but i think it's somehow uh, sometimes how it's perceived
2: correct it's, correct
1: i think you know it's about um the every character is for themselves Every person is for themselves. Yeah. I don't mean they're selfish. I mean, they're they, they are, their view on the world is 360 degrees from where Correct. they stand. And they have their own dreams, their own needs, Goals, yeah. their own shortcomings, their own whatever. And so when they interact with other people, that's what they're bringing to that interaction. And retention lies. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think if, you know, when playwrights and there are playwrights who do that naturally, naturally, um, Shakespeare does it. Um, uh, uh, uh Shanley does it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Girgis does it. Um, you know, I think that's so to, just to name some you know, white male playwrights who, who, who do it. Um, And uh, that, that is, that is really the thing. And then I think there's also having an awareness, uh, having some kind of awareness of the social, political and economic and racial uh, hierarchies of the world and how they manifest is useful in terms of getting that specificity in terms of how somebody, what some, what your character's perspective is, what is informing that perspective. Um, If you don't have any awareness of the differences between uh, people's social realities it's, it's going to make it a little bit hard. And whether you do that because you've studied it or whether you just do it intuitively, you know, I think a lot of the best playwrights uh, aren't political thinkers. They just have an intuitive sense of those kind of social power dynamics and how yeah. they uh, manifest. And it's never one thing, you know, it's uh, it's always particular and strange and um, and what, what's. Social social structures don't lock people into one way of behaving. I mean, I think that's the other thing Correct. that happens. You know.
2: Yeah. Anyway. And you have a great uh. No, you know, this is this. I mean, it's you're right on the money. This is everything you're you're preaching the the credo I live by. Uh, you you uh you have this innate gift in your in your writings, which is why I said in the beginning I'm a huge fan that you 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 find the specificity and I and I I know. When I'm reading it, I go, she's all over this. I mean, obviously, well, it is you, but Fun Home, I mean, I don't know how much of you is in there, but it feels like so much of you is in there mm-hmm. because these people are so alive. And, and what does it mean to you to know that Lisa's voice and her experiences in, 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 in the gay world have transcended themselves into Fun Home? And now those experiences have opened the doors to many conversations among families and to people that walked in with one viewpoint and now have left with a different viewpoint, maybe picked up the phone and called that child or had that talk or a child found a way to come out to their parents. You know, what, what does that mean, that 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 great power that we have as artists?
1: I mean, you know, that's very moving to hear those stories, certainly. You know, the, the cast, uh, when the show was on Broadway, used to refer to the, um, you know, the, the autograph line as their second act you know, and they had, you know, people would come up to Judy Kuhn, you know, women would come up and say, my husband's standing behind me. He's, he's gay. He's in the closet, you know? Oh my God. Um, you know, young, uh, you know, young lesbians would say to Beth, you know, uh, it's sort of the same, like people told their secrets, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm queer, you know, my, my family's right there. I haven't been able to come out to them yet you know, um, an am- amazing amount of people, uh, had gay fathers, closeted gay fathers and they, um, who came out to them in a car. It's like this specificity oh, really? of that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, so. wires
2: universal. <laughs> yeah.
1: Or, or, you know, people who grew up in funeral homes also. Really? Yeah. Um, oh, wow. so, uh, you know, that's always really interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like, it, You know, as theater animal that I am, that's, of course, extremely moving. But the thing that I'm after is what happens actually in the theater. You know, is that feeling of a galvanized audience, you know, who have sort of merged into one collective consciousness and are merged with the experience of the unfolding show. You know, that is the, it's not like what might happen afterwards, although that certainly is meaningful, but the driver of the work is, is trying to create the conditions for that thing to happen. When an audience is lifted up and lost in the unfolding action of a show, that is really the thing that is, the that's, that's what I'm after. And that's the, just the, you know, just the heart bursting gratification when it happened, when that happens.
2: Um, so my final question, uh, is at the very beginning of, well, you mentioned that, you know, this great thing that is so truly so that when you're, when you're home as an adult for a, for a, for a long time, you suddenly feel 13 again. Mm-hmm. I, I know, I know that I'll be in the backseat of my parents' car during the holidays and I go, why am I car sick all of a sudden again? Right. I haven't been car sick. Why is the seatbelt feel very oppressive? You know, right. I, I just, I feel like a child and, and the sentiment's so true. And this episode is all about, um, It's all about family this episode and and about changing hearts and minds in the upcoming election, but also how to take care of your heart and mind when your family has decidedly chosen to back Donald Trump and, and the party. Now, what do you say just as a human, as a creator, as an activist to those who, because of a pandemic, find themselves back home with family, not only feeling 13 again, but as if they have suddenly nothing in common with their parents?
1: Well, I'm not in that situation For which I'm very grateful. I was talking to one of my best friends uh, this weekend, who's a a minister. And many of her congregants are in this situation. And, um, you know, she started talking to me about this because I was talking about feeling um, overwhelmed. And she was saying that she had given a sermon about how... When we in this moment, when what we think we're feeling is overwhelmed, what we're really feeling is fear, mm-hmm. and I found that very useful. Um, and and she was talking about people's fear of confronting their their families, and the fear is, you know, they're you know, she's got congregants whose sons are, you know, turning toward you know, Trumpism. Mm -hmm. And their, their fear is that if they say something, they will lose their sons. Yeah. Wow. Um, These are, these are terrible, terrible circumstances. What is at stake is so big. And I would say that there's not There's not a right way to be because the threat of Trumpism, the threat of this white supremacist uh, authoritarian um, thing that's rising up movement that's rising, it's it's ruthless and it's a violent and it's I don't. I you know because my because of how my father grew up I have never not thought this was possible in this country ever. Um and I don't underestimate how bad it could be. How there's nothing holding them back. Yes, what's holding them back is us. But they well, especially in, when they have four in, more years internally <laughs> there's nothing holding them back from Correct. the worst from the worst. You know, I'm I'm reading about what's happening in you know Belarus. Yeah, I don't. You know, with without something to hold, these this is the same type of person. It's the same type of person. So every choice that we're making, you know, Louis deJoy just pulled back because and this happened again and again, they, they, they throw, they throw some, you know, horrific thing out to see if it lands and then went, and then we push them back. We have the ability to do that. The degree to which people do that within their own families and what's at stake. The stakes are extremely high in both directions. The,
2: The point of this whole podcast, you know, obviously dedicated to a theater loving and theater participating crowd is that you know to remind that we the people you know the idea that we're learning right now at at, at that convention that we are the bosses we forget we forget that yes obstacles are going to be thrown in our way more than we even imagine we are at the beginning of a crazy next 70 something days yeah but it is but we have the power if we come out in mass force they cannot stop us they can't do it can't do it
1: i've been watching patrice colors daily digest on um igtv and I'm just like, if if Patrice Colors can, um, you know, with her, just like the light shining out of her, you know, give a little rundown of, you know, what's been accomplished in that week, and say we're changing things, we're making change, we're, you know, just ha- have such specificity, and her work is so consistent and mm-hmm. so revolutionary, and uh, you know, if, if she can. Bring that, you know, positivity and sense of possibility and um, determination to keep doing this work. If like if she can share that with me, then I'm just really just really trying to do my best to turn away from my, um, you know, sky is falling, um, (laughs) uh, reflexive nature and 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 do the same and turn toward what is possible.
2: That's amazing. Uh, Lisa, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, I started off a fanboy, and now I'm an even bigger fanboy. Uh,
1: Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it.
2: All right. Voter registration. Voter registration for New York State. Remember, if you are not in New York State, it is an easy Google search. Just Google voter registration and your state, and you will find all the information right there for you, I promise. Voter registration New York State. Our deadlines are... It has to be postmarked by October 9th, received by October 14th. The last day to have a postmark request for an absentee ballot is October 27th. The last day to do it in person is November 2nd. The last day to postmark the absentee ballot and send it in is November 2nd. The last day to drop it off in person, November 3rd, Election Day. Now, listen, with everything going on with the post office and the Postmaster General, we have to think a little outside the box. First off, if you can and you feel safe, And comfortable doing so, show up in person. There's plenty of early voting in this country. There is plenty of time for it. Show up in person, take the proper precautions, and vote in person. That way, your vote happens right there in that moment, and it is safe and clear of Donald Trump's corruption. Another option, get your absentee ballot, but do not mail it in. Put it in a drop box. Drop it off at the election center on the day of. Make sure it is in the hands of a professional whose job it is to count these ballots and not a system that has been infiltrated by a Trump lackey. So keep those thoughts in your head as we move forward because we know it's only going to get worse from here. But now in good news. Well, shit happened. Since last we chatted, a huge development happened. We have a vice presidential pick, Kamala Harris. And the reception by Democrats has been overwhelmingly positive, yet there are a few progressives who seem intent on shooting holes through not only this historic moment, but a tremendously qualified choice. So let me offer you a new angle. Let's get to the core of what we've been talking about with healing the pains of our deeply racist country and once again being a beacon of light to the world. The very reason we're out there in the streets marching with demands etched onto cardboard raised high in the air. A black Indian woman told an older white man that his choices led to racist policies that affected her childhood. The older white man wasn't threatened by her, but instead listened and meditated on what that meant. The older white man then chose the black Indian woman to help him lead a severely broken country because they both knew that from a painful past, a hopeful future can begin. Now, if that's not the story of America, I don't know what is. Our past dictates our future. Our pain is the largest ingredient in our healing, and your pride and your feelings must not outweigh the promise of what this ticket will do to save our country at a do or die moment, a moment where we have betrayed our promise to the world and allowed chaos to overwhelm it. In a country built and that runs on compromise, no one remembers the person who stood there with their arms crossed, but they always remember the person that reached out their hand to help. Now go get to work. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, we're here every other week. So go get to work and we can't wait to have you back. Also, please consider making a donation to Fair Fight at www.fairfight.com. We know when they can't win fairly, they always try to cheat. And Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight are working hard to ensure that doesn't happen. Do You Hear the People Sing is a production of the Fabulous Invalid LLC and the Broadway Podcast Network. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Kyle Moore. Our theme music is by Brett Rybeck. Our photography is by Michael Kushner, and our graphic design is by Aviva Sokolah-Shahar.